Okay, welcome back uh, to RUF. Uh, we're going to continue our study tonight uh, through the topic of relationships. And let me just say this, you know, I say this every week. This is a massive topic to try to cover um, in a semester. And I know that I'm not getting to some of your questions that you might have, or maybe something I say raises more questions. I totally understand that. Uh, and I just want you to know, track me down after RUF, shoot me a text message. Many of you have already done that. And we'll get together and we'll work it out. We'll grab coffee and we'll talk about it if I'm not getting to some of the questions that maybe you have as a result of some of the things we're talking about. It would be impossible for me to answer all of those in the time that we have on Wednesday nights. But tonight we're covering the topic of marriage from Ephesians chapter 5. And the outline is printed for you on your announcement sheets as long as, uh, along with the text for tonight. Um, last week we talked about the topic of singleness from the Apostle Paul and what's interesting Paul has this uh, very well balanced view of singleness and then the same Apostle Paul writes for us Ephesians chapter 5 with this incredible uh, high view of marriage so he holds both of those uh, together in the Bible and what's interesting is you think about this subject of marriage, if you were here last week and I pointed out that according to the Bible, everyone in this room is single, one of your responses might be, well, then why in the world are we talking about marriage if no one in this room is married? Uh, that seems uh, irrelevant. Uh, well, a couple of reasons. One reason is because the Bible talks a lot about marriage. Uh, the Bible begins with a wedding and ends with a wedding. Uh, the very first wedding uh, was officiated by God in Genesis chapter 2. And the Bible actually says that this whole world, in a sense, is marching towards a wedding. The day when Jesus Christ will return and he will take his people to be his bride. If you are a Christian, you are headed towards a wedding, towards the great wedding feast of the Lamb that Revelation chapter 19 talks about. And so in the Bible, marriage uh, and weddings are a really big deal. And so for that reason, uh, it would be worth our time tonight to talk about marriage and what the Bible has to say about it. Uh, and then also, when we think about this topic of marriage and why we're covering it, let me come at it this way uh, for a second. When you think about this topic of marriage, in my time doing campus ministry, most students tend to fall in one or two places as we think about the topic of marriage. You either, on one side, you dread it. On the other side, you dream about it. Dread or dream, that's normally where people fall, most students fall. For example, some of you tonight, it absolutely terrifies you to think about marriage. You dread the topic of marriage because as you sit here tonight, marriage seems like a gamble to you. And all you can think about is, what if I marry the wrong person? Or what if I'm in one of those lifeless soul-sucking marriages. And it's like the couple that you see out to dinner and they spend their whole dinner just looking at their food and they have absolutely nothing to say to one another. You're fearful of, what if that happens to me? Or maybe you're thinking, 
I don't know if I want to get married because it's going to jeopardize, jeopardize my dreams. I have all these dreams for my career and for my life. And to think about marriage and thinking about another person, it would actually put that in jeopardy. And so maybe you're here tonight and you dread marriage. And maybe another reason you dread marriage is you see your parents. And you see how awful their marriage is. And how painful their marriage is. And you look at marriage and maybe some of you are thinking, why in the world would I want that? That's a real place. And some of you are there. But on the other side, some of you are dreaming about marriage and it's all you think about in a really good way. Some of you have been dreaming about your wedding day since you were little as far back as you can remember and you've been subscribing to Bridal Magazine since you were 10. <laughs> and, and you've planned your wedding. Some of you have your ceremony down already and you don't even have any prospects. <laughs> I mean, you, <laughs> you, you know, seriously, I know this, okay? Some of you know what song you're going to come down the aisle to. Some of you know what song you're going to leave the church to as your pronounced husband and wife. You have the ceremony planned all the way down to the detail. And you are here because you want the ring by spring. You want to be married more than anything in the world, and so you dream about it in a really good way. You dream about it in thinking that that's going to be the key. And once I get there, I would finally have arrived in life. And so two places. You're either dreading marriage or you dream about it. And here's what I want to communicate. Is there are actually problems with both of those ways of thinking. And the problem is this. Both of those assume that marriage exists for you. Both of those ways of thinking assume that marriage is about your happiness. And tonight, what I want to communicate through this passage is show you that marriage is not for your happiness. Marriage is actually for something much bigger and way better than simply your personal satisfaction and your happiness. So before we dig in, let me pray. Ask the Spirit to come and help us. Father, we come to this place and we're into November and some of us are completely exhausted. We're anxious. Um, we're carrying burdens that no one else knows about. And we need you uh, to come tonight and give us a word of encouragement. We need you to come um, and through your Spirit... Uh, renew our strength, renew our spiritual energy. Uh, Father, we pray that you would revive us through the Word tonight. That as we talk about marriage, that you would show us how it is an incredible picture of the way you love your people. Lord, encourage us through that truth so that we can leave here um, encouraged and changed and strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, three things tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about the priority of marriage, the purpose of marriage, and then thirdly, the picture of marriage. So number one, the priority of marriage. Look at verse 31. What's interesting about this verse is the Apostle Paul 
is actually giving us a direct quote from the Old Testament. He's taking us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the first wedding that God officiated, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. That's where God institutes or sanctions the marriage relationship. Marriage is not our idea. It's God's idea. God's the one who invented marriage. And he says here in verse 31, which is again drawing from Genesis 2, Paul says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and they shall cle- and he shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The Apostle Paul here, this is covenantal language. We're going to talk about what that means in just a second. But what I want you to hear is that when you get married, what makes marriage a marriage is the fact that you are making a covenant before God and witnesses to another person. What makes marriage a marriage is that you stand before God and witnesses and you make promises to someone. And the next question then would be, okay, so what is a covenant exactly? And when you think about a covenant, most people think about a covenant and they think, oh, it's just like a contract. It's not like a contract. Think about a contract. I'm in contract, and I don't know who your cell provider is. I'm with AT&T, and I'm in a contract with them. They hold my cell service. And basically, that contractual agreement is this. I pay them a certain amount of money, whatever my plan is, and they provide cell service for me. And at any point that I do not uphold my end of the agreement, I don't pay my bill, what do they do? Well, they charge extra charges, fines, or maybe they even shut off your cell service. But I also can get out of the agreement, right? If I find another provider that has a better deal or if I want to upgrade, it might be a little bit of a headache and I might have to do a few things and pay some extra money, but I can easily opt out of that contract on my end as well and upgrade. And a lot of people think about marriage, and that's the way they think about it. As a contract, we agree to love each other, but if a person violates that agreement in some way, I can cancel the contract. Well, we think of it like, I'm in this agreement with someone and then maybe a better option comes along and presents itself that's more attractive. And so I can cancel that. And I can upgrade, so to speak. It might be a few penalties. There might be a few headaches involved. You might have to pay some money for a lawyer to get a divorce, but I can always opt out. That is not what marriage is. Marriage is not a contract. It is a covenant It is not loyalty to an agreement. Marriage is loyalty to a person. And that makes all the difference. Marriage, according to the Bible, is defined this way. A personal, okay, it involves another person. You can't marry yourself. It's a personal, public. That's why marriage has to be done before witnesses and before God. Because it's in a sense saying that you don't care who holds you accountable to this covenant. Marriage is personal, public, and a permanent promise between a man and a woman to love one another. And so as you think about that, that human covenant between a man and a woman, what are the implications of that in your life? Well, there are many, but let's talk about two. The first one is this. 
Outside of your relationship with God, what that means is the marriage relationship is to be the most important thing in your life, the most important human relationship than you're in, that, that you are in. No other human being that you're in relationship with, why? Because you're not in covenant with them, so no one else should get more of your love, energy, industry, commitment, whatever it is, than your spouse, than the person that you're married to. And I want you to think about that. Did you know that what really takes marriages down, and, 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 and this of course does, but most of the time it's not the yucky stuff. It's not the you know, pornography, alcoholism, affairs. Yes, that does, so hear me say that. That definitely takes marriages down. But you know what oftentimes takes marriages down is really good things. When really good things become ultimate things and become the top priority in marriage. And Paul is saying, if you're in covenant with this person in marriage, it is to be the most important thing. More important than your leisure time. More important than fishing and hunting. More important than your children. More important than your parents. More important than your career. The marriage relationship is to be your number one priority as far as human relationships are concerned. The other implication, the second implication of this, is that marriage is a decision. <coughs> marriage is a decision. I talk to lots of you, and, so I, and I know that this is a common thought, and you're always wondering how to answer this question. How will I know who I'm supposed to marry? How will I know when I have found the one? And the assumption there, how will I know when I, when I find the one that I'm somehow mystically connected to? And, and if you go down that line of thinking, that's dangerous because what ends up happening is it often creates this fear in you when you start thinking about this, finding the one in the world that you're mystically somehow connected to and it all just clicks. Because then you start having fears of what? I don't know. How do I know? What if I found the wrong person and end up with the wrong person? And you know, Christians have developed, and this is just my opinion, but I think that's really weird and bizarre. And Christians have developed this really weird, bizarre method of identifying who you're supposed to marry. Because we start believing this mystical soulmate stuff. And we start saying things like, oh, you'll just know. You'll just know when you found the one. As if there's this mystical feeling of certainty that somehow magically comes over you. And yes, I found the one. And honestly, I think that's very misguided. And I think it's damaging and unhelpful and actually paralyzes you with fear when you start to think that way. Listen, I'm not saying you won't have feelings. I'm not saying that you won't get really excited and you won't be really excited and attracted to the person you're marrying. I said all that a few weeks ago on the topic on love. You can go back and check that out. All I am saying is that the decision to marry is just that. A decision. And oftentimes we get all caught up in our head and we end up overthinking it. When the Bible talks about it simply being a decision, the question is really this. 
Are you willing, with the person that you're thinking about marrying or maybe in a relationship, are you willing to stand up before God? Are you willing to stand up before friends and family and a minister and make lifelong promises them, to them to love them and cherish them and be with them until death do us part? That's the question. The question is not, is this person, am I somehow mystically connected to them? Do you want to know how you know that they're the one? You know that a person is the one and that it's God's will for you to marry them. This is going to freak some of you out. But you'll know after you say, I do. That's how you know whether it's God's will for you to marry someone. After you finish your wedding vows, that's how you know that they're the one. Before then, you're not bound to them. But after you take those vows and commit and get in covenant with them, then you're bound to them till death do us part. And at that point, you know it's God's will for you to be with them for the rest of your life. And I know that's, that's frightening for some of you to think about that, but that's really how the Bible talks about whether or not it's God's will for you to be with someone. You know after you have taken vows with them. Secondly, the purpose of marriage. In other words, this is the question of what will happen to me if I do get married. Look at verses 24, I'm sorry, 25 through 27. What will marriage do to me? Look at what the Apostle Paul says. Says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that they might become holy without blemish. God has set up marriage in such a way that when you enter into it, it transforms you in a new way. God has made the marriage relationship such that it cleans you. That it actually cleanses you from your sin and selfishness. That's the, one of the purposes of marriage. And I want you to think about that. The ramifications of that are huge because here's what it means. Marriage primarily, notice I didn't say all the way because yes, you're going to be happy, hopefully. You're going to have satisfaction in your marriage. But marriage primarily is not about your happiness. But it's about your holiness. It's not primarily about your satisfaction. It's about your sanctification. And so how does this work itself out in real life? Well, Chris Rock, one of my favorite Reformed theologians, it's a joke, um, <laughs> he says this, and I love this quote by him, he says, when you first meet someone, you're not meeting them but you're actually meeting their representative, the person sent ahead to make them look good. That is true. I want you to think about that. Think about when you start dating someone and you go out on that first date. You get all dressed up. You put your best foot forward. You hide your flaws. Guys are being really polite. They're pulling out chairs. They're opening doors. You're all in on the conversation. You're really engaged. You have really good questions. You're nice. You're over-the-top nice. That's awesome. The problem is you're basically lying. 
Because that's not really you. You're pretending to be much nicer, nicer, cooler, and funnier than you actually are. And then what happens is you start dating that person, and yes, and I know you think they come down way more, yes, you think the walls come down, and yeah, they might come down a little bit, but remember what we said about dating, they don't come down much. Why? Because dating in and of itself is insecure, and so you don't want them to see you all the way to the bottom, because you're scared if they see you all the way to the bottom, that they're going to leave, and they can leave, because they're not bound to you. And so you keep the walls up high, and you still do not let them see you all the way to the bottom. You're hiding at some level. And then you finally get married. And then once you get in married, once you get into marriage, you're in covenant with them. And you have some security in the relationship. And then the walls then come all the way down and you are yourself for the very first time. And then you know what happens then? The wheels start to come off the track. And nuclear war begins to happen. Not always, but in a lot of cases. And it reminded me as I was thinking about this message, I had a couple at Sanford that I married my second year I was there. And I walked with them through their dating relationship, did their engagement and premarital counseling, actually married them. Uh, and I'll be real honest with you, they were borderline cheesy <laughs> couple. And... They were, they were really into each other, and it was like this fairy tale relationship. And in, so in premarital counseling, you know, the other person could do no wrong. And I remember being in premarital counseling, and my point with them was to really push in on the reality of marriage. And that you got two sinners in a marriage, in a covenant, and it's going to be hard. Yes, it's awesome, but it's going to be really difficult too. And so I kept pushing on that, and they were like, no, 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 we're good, not us. You know, we're going to be fine. And that's the problem with premarital counseling is no one's listening. <laughs> and so um, the, that's why I always say the, pre, the best counseling is six months to a year after you're married because that's when the real issues start to come to the surface. But here it is. So I married them three weeks after the wedding. Okay, keep that in mind. One week honeymoon. Second week back into the real world. Third week they're on my couch in my living room <laughs> crying. They said we had no idea marriage would be this unbelievably hard what happened they put their best foot forward when they were dating they're in the security of a marriage relationship and then who they really were started to come out and it started to get hard because listen all of the junk and the sin that we so easily press down as we're growing up in our life we either ignore it we uh, push it down and suppress it or we just get a new friend group or whatever it is if we start feeling bad about ourselves, or our sin gets revealed we just go to another person and so we never deal with it once you get into a marriage relationship though you are forced to deal with it sometime, some, oftentimes for the very first time and it gets really hard because now you have someone living with you who is constantly holding up a mirror Forcing you to see yourself in a new way. In a way that you haven't seen yourself before. 
And the temptation in that moment is when it gets really hard is to say, this is a bad marriage. I married the wrong person. I've got to get out of this. I've got to find someone else because I need to be happy. No. When you run into that, if you were to get married one day, when you hit that point, you are actually rubbing up against God's design for marriage at that point. God has designed the marriage relationship in such a way that when it gets hard and you realize that you married another sinner, there's no eject button. You can't run. When every other time in your life you could run. And at this point, because you're in covenant and you're covenantly bound to them, there is no escape. And for the first time, marriage, okay, it's not the other person necessarily. It's the marriage relationship itself that forces you to start to deal with your own sin and forces you to see another person's sin and to actually enter into that and patiently bear with them in the midst of their sin as well. And in the midst of all of that, here's what else you'll find. Not only will you see your sin bubble up to the surface, but you'll see that you got a really big Jesus who rescues you and who loves you more than you could ever imagine. And I think the implications of this, uh, it has huge implications on who you choose to marry. How do you know who you're supposed to marry to get back to that question? Well, throw the list out the window. You got this list. I'm not saying that the list doesn't mean anything, but oftentimes we make this list of all the things we're looking for, and it's like Jesus himself, okay? (laughs) No one's that perfect. And so what this does is it forces you to throw the list out the window and instead of looking for someone who's perfect, it says, why not look for another person and look at them and when you see and get a glimpse of what God is doing in their life and see how God's at work and who He's creating them to be, look at that person and ask yourself, do you want to be a part of what God's making them into? You see, finding the right person is about looking at someone and say, I see who God's making you into, and it excites me, and I want to partner with you and God on this journey in making you more like Jesus. You see, that's the thing I love about the Bible. It's because it brings us back to reality because on the one hand, it's brutally honest and realistic about relationships. And it says if you don't see the flaws and the weaknesses and the dependencies in a person's life, you're not even in the game. You're not even in the game. But on the other hand, it says if you don't get excited about who that person is becoming in Jesus and who God is making them into, then you're not tapping into the power of the marriage relationship. How do you know who you're supposed to marry? Stop asking the question, will this person make me great? Will this person make me happy? And start asking this question, do I want to give myself wholeheartedly to making them great 
Do I want to dedicate my life to making them more beautiful? When you see that other person, ask this question, am I willing to die to what I want so that they can become the best version of themselves? When you find that person, you have found someone that has the potential to be a husband or to be a wife. Thirdly, the picture of marriage. So what does marriage show us? Look at verse 32. This is a profound mystery. Okay, he's talking about the mystery of marriage here. And Paul says, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And what's interesting is Paul is talking about a husband and a wife and he's showing us the picture of their love for one another and then he says, no, wait a minute. I'm actually talking about Jesus and his love for the church. In other words, the gospel... Or in other words, marriage is gospel reenactment. Marriage is a real life, visible picture of the way God loves his people. Let's work that out for a second. We've said that marriage is a covenant. And so what we learn is that God relates to you, and if you're a Christian, relates to you covenantally. What does that mean? Well, it means this, that God has bound Himself to you in love apart from any conditions. He loves you and He's committed to you. Hang with me here. He's lo- he, he loves you and is committed to you when you're reading your Bible, when you're going to RUF, when you're praying, when you're on missions trips. But you know when else He's committed to you and when else He loves you with a love that lasts forever? when you're not doing those things. That same commitment, He's committed to you when you're not reading your Bible and praying and when you're full of shame and sin and when you've blown it. I've been looking through the Psalms and what's interesting is over and over you see that refrain, His love endures sometimes when you're really good Then it endures. No, 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 no. His love endures with a covenantal love. It endures forever and ever because God's commitment to His people is not conditional. It's covenantal. And that makes all the difference. It reminds me of that shocking story in the Bible in the Old Testament in Hosea. And you should read it if you have never read Hosea before. But it's about this guy who marries the town prostitute. And after they get married, she continues to sleep around and cheat on him over and over and over again. She's even having children by these other men. And the guy, as heartbreaking as it is, he stays committed to her through it all. And you know what God says? He says, you see that picture that I've painted for you in Hosea? That, that is the way I love you. That is the way I love my people. You relentlessly are unfaithful to me. But I don't leave you. I do not forsake you. You're unfaithful. I remain faithful, I keep my promises, and my love endures forever. And I want you to think about that just for a second. 
I pray that that would hit you in a good way in your heart. Some of us have heard that for our whole childhood. And it doesn't move us. Think about that. Let that get down into your bones. And if it got down into your heart and into your bones and into the core of who you are, what would that do to you? You see, the gospel, Jesus' love for you is what frees you up to be committed and to go love another person. Even people that you're married to that are hard to love sometimes. You can be gracious and forgiving when people sin against you. Why? Because Jesus was gracious and forgiving when you sinned against Him. You can love and serve another person that is messy because Jesus loves and serves you when you're messy. You can hang in there with people and be patient with them in the midst of their shortcomings. Why? Because Jesus hangs in there with you in the midst of your shortcomings. His commitment to you is what pushes you out and gives you the power to be committed to another person in that way. But also think about it this way. If marriage is covenant, but it's also what? Laying down your life for another person so that they can become beautiful, so that they can become holy. And you think about the gospel. Does Jesus do that? Yes. Jesus takes our shame and he takes our sin and he takes our selfishness with him to the cross and actually takes our place. Friends, Jesus is not surprised by your sin. Jesus did not marry you because you cleaned up your life. Jesus marries you to clean up your life. Jesus does not marry, marry you because you got it going on and because you're lovely. No, Jesus marries you in order to make you lovely. There's an article that I actually read just this morning. Um, and it's in the Huffington Post. I think it was a couple of weeks ago that it was actually posted. But the title of the article was about love. The title of the article is Real Love is a Choice. And in this article, the author basically uh, tells a story towards the end of the article about his grandparents and their marriage and their love for one another. And in the story, basically, his grandmother, when she was 50, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And if you know anything about multiple sclerosis, it wreaks havoc on the nervous system. And it, two or three years later, after she was diagnosed, she couldn't walk and she was bound to a wheelchair. Her husband, this, the writer's grandfather, was the chief of police and actually had to retire a few years early in order to take care of his wife. He had to help her do pretty much everything. Get around the house, take medicines, a bath, visit the doctor, everything. And then at the end of the article, he says he was talking to his grandfather and listen to what he says. It hurts me to see her like this. You know, when I got married, I thought that everything would be smooth sailing. I never imagined for once that I would have to help her change her catheter every single day. But I do it. And I don't mind it. Because I married her. And because I love her. 
That resonated with me. Because that's the picture. That is such a good picture of love and marriage. But here's the thing. It's just a glimpse. It's just a small window into the way that Jesus loves you. It's just a small picture. As good as that story is, it doesn't even come close to the way Jesus loves you with a covenantal commitment and sacrifice. Friends, Jesus really is this committed to you. It's a covenantal commitment. He is bound to you. And you know how we know? It's because he sacrificed absolutely everything so that he could come down and have the joy of being with you for all eternity. That image. Friends, if, and I'm, I'm talking to myself here. If we could get that image burned into our hearts and minds, not only would that give us the power to have marriages till death do us part, but that would give us the power to live all of our life in a radically different and life-giving way. Let's pray.